We are continuing our series this morning in in First Peter, and uh, you know if you've ever driven through. Um, a speed zone, a school zone where the speed limit goes from 40 to 15. Have you ever had that experience? And 15 feels so slow. Um, in the other places where I've lived, the uh, school's speed limit zone is 25. And uh, when we moved to Pennsylvania a few years ago, to hit 15 feels like, I mean, it feels like you're getting passed by people walking and, you know, it's like really, really slow, which is great because we love kids. You know, we don't want to hurt kids or anything, but, but, it just feels like you crawl to a stop uh, when you try to get to 15. And when you bump, bump up to 20, you have to completely take off the accelerator and slow way down. Well, the text that we're looking at this morning, not that we've been on some turbo pace through First Peter. Uh, we hope to get through First and Second Peter by the end of this month, but, but it was never going to happen. Um, so we've been moving through First Peter at this pace. But hey, when we get to this section, uh, we'll be lucky to finish this meaty section uh, over the next three or four weeks. It's so rich, and so I want us to, like we're going 40, to drop down to 15 and take our time through this section of Scripture. A very powerful, um, very meaty section. 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 6 through 11. So let's read that section together slowly, and then we're going to focus really on that first verse this morning. Let's read it together. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 6. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him standing firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of sufferings are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to His eternal glory in Christ, will Himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To Him be the dominion forever and ever Amen. So, Father, as we come to your word, we simply acknowledge that with a few words, you spoke everything into existence. We acknowledge the great power of your word. And so, as we approach your word this morning, we understand that just a a simple word from you this morning could make the difference in our life. That as you speak to us, that as you uh, enlighten us by your word and by your spirit, that there is life here. And so I pray that you would give us ears to hear. I pray that you would give us attention. I pray that you would give us focus. I pray that you would speak clearly to whatever situation we're in. Father, I'm always amazed at how you can take one sermon and apply it to 60 different minds and hearts at the same time in different ways. So I thank you that you are able to speak to us through your word and through the simple outline and stories that you have put on my heart to speak this morning. So would you use it to change our lives and to make us more and more like Jesus? And it's in his name we pray. Amen. A rich passage. There's a lot here. Uh, If you probably picked up on, there are several promises or assurances in this passage. 
You saw uh, the assurances that he gives us, the promises. Uh, it says he may exalt you. So there's a promise that if you've been humbled, if you've been uh, brought low, if you've experienced trials, that there is a, a promise that you may be exalted. Certainly you will be at the resurrection. And in heaven there will be an exaltation. You will be, um, you will be fulfilled in glory and all those things. Uh, you see the promise in verse uh, 7 that he cares for you. Isn't that a simple promise that He wants you to cast all your anxieties? Some versions say cast your cares on Him because He cares for you. That's a very simple promise. And we know He loves us, but there's a difference in His his eternal love for you and His sacrificial love for you and the fact that He just cares about you. You see the promise that others are suffering around the world. And so if you feel alone today, if you feel like this is, I'm the only one who struggles this way. I'm the only one who's buried under these trials. The, the truth is that there are other people suffering. That there is a, a sense of camaraderie among the brotherhood and the sisterhood of believers. That, that as we gather together, we know that there are other people struggling in ways that we are as well. There's a fourth promise that the God of grace, probably my favorite promise that we'll get to in about six uh, or eight months, um, that we should... Uh, Come to this God of all grace who has called you to His eternal glory in Christ that He will Himself restore you. He will Himself confirm you. He will Himself strengthen you. And He will establish you. What a rich promise. We see in this passage a couple of verbs, things that you are supposed to do. You're supposed to humble yourself. You're supposed to cast all your anxieties on Him. You are supposed to be uh, sober-minded. You're supposed to be watchful. You're supposed to resist this adversary. You're supposed to stand firm in your faith. And you're supposed to acknowledge that there are people experiencing the same kinds of suffering as you are. So there are a few things that you are supposed to do in this passage. But the one thing we're going to focus on uh, for the next few minutes is verse 6. This idea that we are to humble ourselves. To humble ourselves ourselves. You, yourself, are to humble yourself. I have a lot of stories and I've asked a lot of people, tell me about a time when you had to humble yourself. I asked a lot of people that question this week and just to try to find out if there's a good story of a time when you had to humble yourself. And I had and heard a lot of great stories. Um, and I don't always do this, but uh, none of them seem to fit. And, and I never want to make my life, you know, this isn't my pulpit that I just get to share my experiences. But, but there was an experience that, um, that demonstrated a need for me to humble myself. And it came shortly after I became a believer, maybe uh, a year and a half. I had been a believer. I'd given my life to Christ. I'd experienced a lot of good things in my first year as a believer. I'd experienced a lot of grace, a lot of transformation, a lot of change, a lot of hope. And then also I got to experience God using me in, in some special ways to lead a few friends and family members to faith in Christ. And so by the time I graduated from high school after this phenomenal senior year of walking with the Lord and growing in Christ-likeness, I applied to go and serve at a summer camp called Windy Gap in Weaverville, North Carolina, just in the Smoky Mountains there. Has anybody ever heard of Windy Gap? Any young lifers in the room? We got a handful of young lifers. A really great camp, and, um, and I knew that being on work crew was a serving role. It was a behind-the-scenes role. But I have to confess 
that I had hoped that God would use my testimony and my story of transformation in an evangelistic way to have eternal impact on students' lives. I was glad to serve, but what I really hoped to do was to impact a lot of people with the gospel. And so in my mind, though I knew I would be serving behind the scenes, I had hoped to have stage time, opportunity to interact with other students and campers and to tell my story. And I knew that on work crew, once a week in front of the entire camp, they would choose a couple of work crew students to share their story. And so I just assumed that God had put me in this position to share in front of four, five hundred students every week. And so I was disappointed in my heart when God put me on the uh, cleaning crew, the dishes crew. I was disappointed that uh, I would wake up every morning and instead of being with campers, uh, I would face my workstation, which was a little machine called Hobart. Anybody ever heard of a Hobart machine? Uh, And I would work with this little sprayer nozzle that came up on a loop. And and no matter what angle you spray that thing, it will shoot back in your face every time. Regardless, it will cover your clothes. It will always look like you have just taken a shower um, in your clothes. So I would spray the thing no matter what angle and food and everything would come away. And I would stick the stuff in the tray and I would stick it through Hobart and push the lid down. And 13 seconds later, uh, I would come clean dishes. And this was my reality. I didn't even get to see students For the first four weeks I was there, it was a very humbling experience. It was very uh, difficult for me to face this machine um, and to pray and to serve in such a, uh, what I thought was a a meaningless way. Has anybody ever been humbled like that? Where you had hoped for something big and God put you in front of something very small? Anybody else have that experience? Well, that week, that month, really, that five weeks, um, instead of being a speaker, I found myself doing this this small uh, task. And through the process of it, the Lord changed my heart. And He helped me to see that uh, serving in humility had its place in the kingdom. Finding a way to humble yourself and to serve in a small way, God is able to do more in your heart to transform you in Christ's likeness through this process of humbling yourself. And so this text this morning, to humble yourself, comes in the context of great suffering. The believers there are really suffering. We've been talking about it for a few months now. They've been really, really suffering. And so Peter is saying, listen, in light of the suffering, in light of the difficulty, you still need to humble yourself. You still need to humble yourself. So I want to answer a couple of questions in our text this morning. Just a couple and we'll be dismissed. Why does God humble people? I want to answer that question. Why does God hum- Why is He so passionately concerned with your humility? How do we humble ourselves? So we want, to, we want to try to get through those two questions this morning with this idea of humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time He may exalt you. It's interesting this phrase, the mighty hand of God mostly used in context of the Exodus. That when the Israelites were extremely persecuted and oppressed in slavery, that the mighty hand of God was the deliverer. He was the one who was able to rescue them out of an extreme situation with a mighty hand. 
You'll read about that in the Psalms and in Moses' writings, that it was the mighty hand of God that parted the Red Sea. It was the mighty hand of God that brought the ten plagues upon the Egyptians. It was the mighty hand of God that led them with a fire by night and a, a cloud by day. It was the mighty hand of God that spoke to them on the mountain. It was this mighty hand of God. And so Peter says, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God, knowing that this mighty hand of God could deliver you from the suffering that you're going through. But he doesn't. He's able, but he won't. There's a reason why he humbles people. It's probably found most clearly to me, at least, in Deuteronomy chapter 8. You can turn there if you want to, but I'm going to read three verses from Deuteronomy 8. And he's describing to the children of the Exodus, not the adults who were taken from Egypt, but you know they, they were uh, taken out over 40 years in the desert. But the children, Moses is giving them final instruction in Deuteronomy 8. And he tells them, you shall remember, in verse 2, Deuteronomy 8, 2, he says, you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness so that he might humble you. God humbled them on purpose. Testing you to know what was in your heart. Whether you would keep his commandments or not. So humbling comes... Humbling comes, God ordains humility in your life to test you. And not so that He can know what's in your heart. He already knows what's in your heart. Testing you, revealing so that you may know what's in your heart. Humility, putting you in a position so that the the dross, the junk, boils to the surface. The process of uh, purifying silver is... Uh, heated to a point where the impurities rise to the top and they're scraped. Heated and scraped. Heated and scraped. That's this process that we're describing. God humbles you so that you can see clearly what's in your heart. You know, there's a reason why Paul started his ministry saying that, uh, that he was the, the least of the apostles, a sort of a, a place of humility. But then he goes on further and later in his writings, he says, I'm the least of all the saints. And then towards the end, he says, I'm the chief of what? Chief of sinners. He humbled you, verse 3, and he let you hunger. God allowed them to hunger. And he fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, so that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Why does God humble you? Because he has called you into this beautiful dependence upon him. He has called you into this beautiful dependence on Him. And your dependence on God is reflected by two things. Your prayerfulness or prayerlessness. Daniel Henderson said, prayerlessness is your declaration of independence from God. That is, the the less you pray, the less dependent you are on God. And your dependentfulness, what am I... Dependence? What am I trying to Your dependence on God is also uh, reflected uh, not only in your prayerfulness or prayerlessness, but also in your daily time in the Word. In your daily time in the Word. How dependent are you, are, are you on Him to speak to you? He will continue to humble you, and He will humble you to remind you that you need Him. Uh, Deuteronomy 8.16 says, He fed you in the wilderness with manna that your fathers did not did not know that He might humble you and test you to do you good in the end. God's humility is for a good purpose when He humbles you. 
Why is humility such an important value to God? Why does He want you to be humble? It's hard for us to understand um, because humility doesn't come natural to people. So it might be helpful for us to define humility. Humility isn't sort of this wormy groveling. God doesn't want you to feel like scum or trash. He's not trying to make you feel bad about yourself. That's not what humility is. Humility is to make low or to bring low, to level or to reduce. It's used in the context of leveling a landscape, taking a high place and making it low. Metaphorically, it's used to bring us into a humble condition, to reduce us to smaller circumstances, to assign a lower rank or place to or to a base. It's been helpful for me to view humility in this way. It's having a right view of yourself in light of who God is. It's not thinking more of yourself in view of who God says you are. And it's not thinking less of yourself. Um, As a matter of fact, both of those extremes are forms of pride, right? When you feel so bad and you're so overwhelmed with how bad you are, that's really just a form of pride and and trying to get, not the attention, but, but focusing so much on yourself that you're so bad, that you're so this, that you're feeling so terrible about yourself, this self-loathing, that's just really a form of pride. But so is self-exaltation, where you're feeling so great about yourself. And so humility is simply, the way I think of it, is viewing yourself rightly. Viewing yourself rightly is extremely valuable to God. He absolutely adores you. He deeply loves you. You are extremely, extraordinarily valuable to Him. He loves you incredibly. And that gives you value, worth, meaning. He has a plan for you and it's a purpose for you. But it's also viewing yourself in the right order of things. That God has also ordained uh, hierarchies and systems and positions and places and uh, assignments and roles and in all those things, understanding that your role is that of a servant. That of a servant that will give an account. God is concerned with you having this right view of yourself. And the best way that we can maybe understand it, or at least maybe the best way I can explain it, is if you were bit by a venomous snake. I read a story this week about a lady who was hiking in California. And under a bush on the trail, there was a rattlesnake that... uh, struck out and got her on the heel. And within a few moments, the neurotoxins were pumping through her body and uh, causing signals in her brain to shut down her respiratory system, causing swelling, causing pain. Um, and within just a, a little while, she, if she didn't get treatment, would be uh, in danger of dying. And other hikers found her, uh, this woman Joanna, and they picked her up and they carried her, put her in the car and drove her to a hospital six miles away where she received 144 treatments of antivenom. Antivenom is a compound made from venom, processed through an animal, and that animal's blood is then built up this resistance and they pull away the animal blood and purify it, and what you have left is a small vial of this antivenom that is absolutely life-saving. It is the correct antidote for the correct snake bite. If you get bit by a certain type of snake, not all antivenom works. Only some kinds work. It has to be the correct. 
What does that have to do with humility? Well, you remember in the Garden of Eden, the serpent comes down and he says, you can be God. You can be just like God, knowing good and evil if you eat this fruit. You can rise above him. You don't need him. You can become God yourself, like me. Essentially, what he's saying is that your pride, your arrogance that you don't need God can strike out. And so the pride of sinfulness is this thing that we don't need God, that we don't need him anymore, that we can become like him ourselves without him. And this pride was like venom. And the only antidote is this humility that Christ demonstrates. In Philippians 2, he became a servant. He emptied himself. He became uh, a slave. Jesus did. He became obedient, even obedient to death on a cross. Jesus demonstrated this way of humility. John 13, he took off his outer garment. He put on a towel. He grabbed a water bowl and began to get on his knees and wash his disciples' feet, declaring to them that if anybody wants to be great among you, he must be the least, the servant of all. Pride is perhaps the greatest barrier to the gospel. You may repent of all sins in your life and you may still have a hidden barrier of pride in your life that says, "Uh, I don't need to receive Jesus. I'm a good moral person. I deserve heaven. That subtle pride that sneaks in uh, is what Charles Spurgeon says, the greatest enemy to human souls is the self-righteous spirit which makes men look to themselves for salvation. I've had many conversations over the last uh, decade and I've heard this line a lot. I've always been a Christian. And I would say, what do you mean? You were born a Christ follower? Yeah, I've always been. a. I can't remember a time when I wasn't a Christ follower. It's this idea that, um, that I, I, I can't admit that I need Jesus. I need new life. Humility is this anti-venom to the, one of the greatest sins there is, that is pride and arrogance. How do you know you're proud? Proud people refuse to ask for help, right? Proud people refuse to say, I'm sorry. Proud people refuse to acknowledge wrong. Proud people see it above themselves to do any duty, no matter how great or small. Proud people uh, have this sense of arrogance. I I was talking to a guy this week and I said, um, just tell me a good story about a time uh, when you experienced somebody who was just prideful and arrogant. He said, I I had a conversation with this guy and and in all seriousness, he, he said how much he hates having conversations with people because everybody else is so much dumber than he is. That he's, he's always, I'm always the smartest guy in the room. You know, how can I ever talk to people when they can't compete intellectually with me? They, I can't even compete on the same level as everybody else. Pride says I can't be taught something new. Pride says I already know it all. Pride says, what can this guy teach me? Pride comes into a room like this and looks at a guy like me and says, what can this guy teach me? Pride says, I can do it myself. Pride says, I don't need anybody's help. Pride is all those things and it's ugly and it manifests itself in a variety of ways. Sometimes it manifests itself in self-deprecation, right? 
I'm so bad. I don't think Jesus could forgive me. Well, he can forgive everybody else's sins, but I'm so bad that he can't forgive me. Pride manifests itself in extreme uh, self-focused behaviors and actions and attitudes. Pride is ugly. And so Peter is saying, humble yourself. Humble yourself. So let's finish this sermon with this idea of how do we do that? How exactly do you humble yourself? Well, I've already mentioned that Humility is having a right view of yourself before God. It's not being so arrogant and thinking so highly of yourself, but it's also not thinking so low of yourself. So it's, it's having a right view of yourself. And for some of you, that's all you need to do to humble yourself is to understand that you're extremely valuable to God, extremely valuable, desperately loved, deeply important to Him. He absolutely adores you and loves you incredibly. Just having that view where you don't have to think negatively of yourself, but you also don't have to have an inflated view of yourself. That you are extremely valuable to God. That mindset alone, for some of you, is enough. But for others, it requires actions. I remember uh, being at a Starbucks. Um, I forget where it was. There's only a few around, but uh, but it was one of them. And... Um, this lady spilled her, it was like 8.30 in the morning, and she spilled coffee all over the floor, all over this guy's shoes, and he's in a suit, and it's in this business area, and there's 10 people behind her in line, and she's embarrassed, and, and um, no one else lifted a finger, and I'm sort of 7th or 8th in line, and, and so I grab a bunch of napkins, and I walk over, and I, I get down, and I start wiping it off, and I get to a point where it's this guy's shoes, and I see coffee on him. I'm not going to wipe his shoes. It's kind of weird. But then I thought, well, why not? See what happens, you know? So I start cleaning the guy's shoes. And he feels weird and I feel weird. And, and he grabs a napkin and kind of lifts it. And, you know, it's just a weird moment. And, and somebody says, well, yeah, you don't have to do that. And I just said, well, you know, Jesus came to serve and not to be served and to give his life as a ransom for many. And, and it just is important to me to do this. Yeah. Humility is an action. It's you doing something that you think is below you. Is there something you think is beneath you? A task? A job? A chore? You think you're too good for that? I can only do this. I can only say yes to these jobs, but not that. Pride, humility, humbling yourself sometimes requires committed actions. Philippians chapter 2 uh, we read uh, this wonderful, uh, what some theologians call a J-curve, where Jesus has uh, started in this position, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. Uh, verse five, uh, verse 6 says, Though he was in the form of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. So Jesus was way up here in likeness with God as God, and being found in human form. So there's a a humbling, he becomes human, and then he humbled himself by becoming obedient. And then the next rung down is he becomes obedient to the point of death. And then this lowest point is even death on a cross. And so you can see the humiliation of Christ. And through every stage, you can see him living in servanthood, washing feet, churning water into wine, serving people, um, when his flesh was tired 
after his cousin John uh, was dead, uh, beheaded, he was serving people. Crowds were coming to him. He was breaking bread. He was healing people. He was delivering people, demoniacs. He was doing all these things, serving people. Jesus took the form of a servant at every stage of his life, even to the, to the lowest point when he was in the garden saying, if it's possible, God, take this cup away from me. I don't want to die like this. But if it's possible, you can take this cup from me. And, and God did not call him to take the cup. He said, no, you go through with it. And so in a yes, sir, humble fashion, Jesus took the flogging and took the death on the cross. That's the lowest point of this J curve. But then you can see it's coming up. Verse 9, therefore God exalted him, highly exalted him, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So we return to 1 Peter 5, 6, and he says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. What does humble look like to you today? What is God calling you to do to humble yourself? In which ways can you serve? In which ways, what actions can you take? What mindset can you change in order to, as Philippians 2 says, consider others more important than yourselves? Father, we pray that you would give us application this morning, that you would show us in your word how we can best fulfill this command to humble ourselves. Would you help us to humble ourselves? We acknowledge that when we don't humble ourselves, oftentimes you humble us for us. So we pray this morning that you would help us to humble ourselves, that we may not need to experience the breaking that takes place often when you humble us. Would you allow us to willingly lay down our lives, not just in death, but in every stage and phase of life, that we would take the form of a servant. In Jesus' name, amen.